Okay, let's begin. Thank you. Um, okay, we're in chapter 13. And the Lot and Abraham have separated ways. The separation came as a result of a dispute between the shepherds of Lot and the shepherds of Abraham. That's back in the seventh verse, Pasuk Zion. There's a dispute between the shepherds, it says Avram shepherds and Lot shepherds. The Torah doesn't tell us what the dispute is. The previous verse, though, talks about that they both had a lot of rechush, a lot of possessions, and that seems to be what the cause of the, of the dispute, whatever the particulars are. And uh, Avram says to Lot, we have to separate, because after all, we're brothers. And um, the verse that's before you in is, um, So Yemin and Saul, as we pointed out, is north and south. So Avram says to Lot, you choose which direction to go. And I'll go in the opposite direction. He gives a lot of choice. And then the next verse says, So Lot picked up his eyes. He saw the plain of the Jordan. It was very fertile. The Torah adds, this is before God destroyed Sodom and Amora. It was like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt. Uh, that's the... Uh, comparison the Torah makes. And it says, So chooses the plain of the Jordan and one separated from his brother. Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan. And Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, he pitched he pitched his tents up to perhaps near, might be right, Sodom. And the Torah adds, "V'yanshe Sodom, Ra'im v'chataim l'Hashem." Oh, the people of Sodom were exceedingly wicked, very wicked. So let's just pause for a moment and think about Lot. Now, the truth is that um, we saw it already in chapter twelve, but he accompanies Avram on the journey. He's singled out in one verse in chapter twelve. It is interesting to note that Rashi, in general, does not like Lot. Rashi consistently is, has negative things to say about Lot. When you read the Chumash, I think one might come to a different conclusion. What is driving Rashi, perhaps, is the following. The, the Medrash that we saw earlier... I'm not hearing anything. The Medrash that we saw earlier is... Um, is uh, tells us the story about Avram being cast into the furnace, into the fire. And that's because he destroyed his father's idols. So the Medrash imports the story of Gidon to the Avram narrative. Now in that story, in that Medrash, among other things, it also picks up on the verse at the end of chapter 11 that says that there were three brothers. There's Avram, there's Nachar and Haran. And Haran died 
al pnei terachaviv, one might translate during the lifetime of or before, while his father was still alive. The place of his birth in Ur Kastim. But the Medrash has a, has a different, or reads, into the, uh, reads it a little differently. The Medrash says, not just during the lifetime of his father, Terach, but on account of. And that's because of the following Midrashic Agadic statement that after Avram was cast into the furnace, uh, Haran, his brother, was on the sort of sat on the sidelines and thought to himself, if, if I'm tested in the same way, let's see, let's look at the outcome. If Avram survives, I'm with him. And if Avram doesn't survive, I'm not with him. So when Avram survives, he says, Nimrod says, How about you? I believe in the same God. He's cast into the furnace and he dies. That's al Terach Aviv, because of the situation with the idols. So in effect, Terach was an indirect cause of the death of Haran, the brother. But what is the point of the Midrash? What is the Midrash getting at when it invents the story? And presumably what it's getting at, I suggest, is that it sees Haran as a person who sits on the fence, who's waiting to see which way things are, are moving. And of course, Haran is the father of Lot. Haran dies and Avram takes, Terach actually takes Lot with him at the end of chapter 11. And Lot accompanies Avram in chapter 12. So what the Midrash is in effect saying is that Lot, it's not that Lot accompanies Avram because he's a true believer, but Midrashically he accompanies Avram because he's like his father Haran who sees a good thing and he sees an opportunity. But fundamentally, He's not really with Avram, even from the beginning. And this is part of the larger project of this particular Agadah, which is to underscore the singularity of, 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 of Avram. That is to say, when you read the Torah, one gets the impression that Terach is the one who actually made the first step towards the land of Canaan without being commanded. He heads towards Canaan from Ur Kastim but for whatever reason, he stops in Haran where he dies. And Avram is then commanded to pick up Terach's journey and to continue, which is why the Torah does not say Ewa Toldot Avram. It says Ewa Toldot Terach. That's certainly a valid way to read the Chumash, but the rabbinic tradition, or at least a tradition, is interested in underscoring the, the specialness of Avram. So we didn't this Agadah. But the truth is when you read the Chumash, what could come to a quite different conclusion. That's Rashi. Rashi has Lot as someone, he was never a true believer from the very beginning. Leaving Rashi aside, in terms of the Chumash itself, I would say the following, that Lot, whatever his initial intentions may have been, but Lot goes with Avram, to Lot in the very beginning, an interesting, like Terah, not having been commanded to go, but he goes with Avram. And the story of Lot is a story of somebody who initially is presumably a potential heir, but at the end of the day, he is, he's, he's removed from the picture. He can't be a successor. And the important point here is that Lot functions in the, in the narrative as a kind of foil. He appears in chapter 12, he appears in chapter 13. He appears in chapter 14. 
and he appears very prominently in chapter 19. So Avram, Lot is one of the main characters of the story and his function is to, is to act as a foil. And when I say a foil, the point over here, perhaps there are different kinds of foils. There's sometimes a foil who is just precisely the opposite in every which way. Uriah Hachiti is a foil for David, King David. He's the noble, noble soldier who thinks about the war, his responsibilities, doesn't want any personal pleasure when his fellow comrades are in the field, or you are the light of God, as opposed to David who acts in stealth, Baseter. With Lot, it's an interesting foil because from one perspective, they're very similar. And what's interesting is Lot's a more complex foil, I would say, because they're similar in many ways. And the similarities, of course, is an invitation to see the distinctions. So for example, let's say in the verse that we read before, Lot chooses, um, Lot chooses to go in verse number, can't see the numbers over here, but the verse, Lot, um, Avram says to Lot, he parted me a lie. If you go north, I'll go south and vice versa. And Lot lifts up his eyes. And Lot picks up his eyes and he sees the plain of the Jordan. And it says in the next verse that Lot decides to go. Lot goes. Lot journeys to the east. So the point here is that Avram is the one who initiates the, 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 the split, the separation. But Avram says north and south. North and south are within the land of Canaan. East means outside, east of Eden. When you go east, you leave. So Lot chooses to leave. Avram initiates the separation, but Lot is choosing to leave. And the place he chooses to leave is the plain of the Jordan. He pitches his tent up to Sodom. But in the next chapter, it says, Lot Yoshev Bestom. Lot is living in Sodom in chapter 14. So he moves from near Sodom, before Sodom, to in Sodom. And what do we know about Sodom? So the Torah here in chapter 13 says something about Sodom. Notice that next verse, Avram Yashav Be'eretz Canaan. Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan. Belot Yashav Be'erekikar Be'yahawad Sodom. And so the Chumash here seems to be suggesting in this verse that it wants us, the reader, in verse number 12, to, de to see Sodom as not being in the land of Canaan. Avram dwelt in the land of Canaan. There, the verb is the verb of disjunction. But, but Lot dwelt in the plains, in the cities of the plain, up to Sodom. Now, what do we know about Sodom? So first of all, we know Sodom in this verse seems to be outside the land. It's very unclear in the Bible whether Sodom is inside the land or outside the land, but in this verse, it sounds like it's in, in, in contrast to Eretz Canaan. And the Torah says earlier that in verse number 10, that Lot lifted up his eyes, he saw the plain of the Jordan, Kula Mashkeh, was very fertile. This was before God destroyed Sodom and Amora. And then the Torah says, Kigan Hashem Ki Eretz Mitzrayim. The Torah compares it to two places. The second of which is the land of Egypt. 
So in other words, what the Torah is saying is that Lot choosing to go to Sodom is in effect choosing to go to Egypt. He sees the fertility. He sees the fertility of Mitzrayim, not the geographic Mitzrayim, but conceptually it's, it's Mitzrayim. He chooses to go there. Sodom equals Mitzrayim in the verse. And very interestingly, it also equals Gan Hashem, the garden of God, which presumably the garden of God that we know of in the book of Genesis, of course, is the garden of Eden. So the Torah is comparing here the garden of Eden to the uh, land of Egypt, which is interesting. Somehow the garden of Eden has become the land of Egypt. The garden of Eden is the place where you have everything. And and the land of Egypt is always water because there's the Nile, so there's no... So my point here is that we're leaving the Garden of Eden out for now, which is very interesting. But what, what Lot is doing then in chapter 13 is what Avram does in chapter 12. There's a, there's a, there's a problem with, with the famine in chapter 12. Avram chooses to go to Mitzrayim. There's a need to move someplace in chapter 13, and Lot chooses to go to the land which is like Mitzrayim. So what Lot is doing, he's following what his Rebbe did. He's following Avram, one might say. So the question then becomes, given the fact that they're doing similar things, what is the difference between Avram choosing to go to, to Mitzrayim and Lot choosing to go to Mitzrayim, in effect, which is what he's doing? What is the difference between those two choices? So here I would say two things. First of all, there's one difference in that in chapter 12, when Avram goes to Mitzrayim, the Torah said, as you recall, Avram went to Agursham. Now the word Agur in biblical Hebrew, certainly in the book of Breshit, means to dwell there temporarily, to sojourn there temporarily, a gear. It's a person who's not necessarily there on a steady basis, doesn't plan to be there for a long time. But logur means temporarily. And the Torah says, when the famine abates, Avram plans to return. He doesn't go there to live. Whereas when it comes to Lot, here the Torah has a different word. Avram yashav b'eretz kenan, Avram yashav, dwelt. Yashavit means in a permanent sense. So Lot is not choosing to go there temporarily. Lot is choosing to go there permanently. That's the first important distinction because in effect, Avram will leave Mitzrayim. He'll be deported, but he leaves Mitzrayim, he goes back to the same place and he left from between Beitel and I. Lot in effect will never fully leave Sodom. He will leave Sodom in chapter 19, but not really fully leave. We'll get there hopefully someday. That's one distinction. But the other difference between the two stories is actually very interesting because in the case of Avram going to Mitzrayim, he goes there knowing what Mitzrayim is. He says to his wife, it's a bad place. If they think I'm married to you, they'll kill me and they'll kidnap you. Say therefore you are my sister. However, when you read chapter 13, Lot choosing to go to Sodom, there is no implication, I think, in chapter 13 that Lot knows that the people of Sodom are very wicked. We, the reader, are told this in verse number 13, 
‫לאנשי סדום רואים וחטאים ראשי מאוד, ‫אבל זה לא נכון ‫שהוא לא יודע את הכל. ‫הוא יודע רק אחד דבר. ‫הוא חושב את זה כאיזשהו So what do we make of that distinction? So on one hand, one could say that it speaks better for Lop than it does for Avram. Because he may think it's a nice paradise, nice place, okay, it's outside the land, but Kulamashke, that's the choice that he makes, it's very fertile. But one of course can make quite the opposite argument, which is what I would advance. And actually, that in the case of Avram, the point is, it's truly made He made a choice. And the Ramban, I happen to agree with this, thinks that he made a bad choice. And I explained in the earlier session why I think it, particularly the Chumash represents it as a bad choice, but it's a choice. And when you, people that make bad choices could also make good choices. But in the case of Lot, it's not actually a choice. Maybe he doesn't know, but he also doesn't try to find out. He's, he's guided only by Mashke. He's guided by the Kula Mashke, by the economic opportunity, but he doesn't take into account the possibility that in leaving the land, which in fact he's doing, he may end up living in a place inhabited by very bad people. So what's interesting is that the two stories are parallel stories in a sense. We, can, we made some distinctions over here, but they're parallel stories and therefore, As we read through the Avram narrative, we're thinking about Lot in contradistinction to, 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 to Avraham. And the fact is that the Avram narrative, in effect, has two foils. There are two main foils in the Avram narrative. They're both very interesting. One is Lot, and the other foil, who will appear in twice, all the Avram stories are double. So he appears twice. That's Avimelech, the king of the Philistines, who appears both in chapter 20 and chapter 21. He also was a foil. By that I mean, on one hand, Avraham and Avimelech have a lot in common. On the other hand, uh, there are important differences between them. And specifically, I would say, the fact that they're parallel characters will accentuate and sharpen the difference between them. Avraham will move away from Avimelech in the narrative Of course, Avimelech remains the same person. So those are the two main foils in the Abraham narrative. I will say, without getting into it now, which is that the, the, Lot, the story of Lot as a foil to Abraham and the story of Avimelech as a foil to Abraham, they figure prominently in two books of the canon. Lot as the foil to Abraham, of course, figures prominently in the book of Ruth, the Yilat Ruth. Ruth is a Abraham character, but she's from Moab. She's a Moabite woman. She's a Moabite woman who's not a Moabite because she's an Abraham character. She's the daughter of Abraham, the kindness, the willingness to leave your place. She's fully an Abraham character. And therefore, perhaps almost by definition, she's an anti-Lot, anti-Moab character. That's the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth seizes on the Lot character of Lot as the foil of Abraham. And in presenting Ruth as an Abraham character, 
by definition, she's an anti-load character. Then we have another book of our canon, which seizes upon Avimelech as the foil to Abraham. And in presenting the main character of that book, Avimelech or his descendants, the Philistines become an important foil for the main character of the book. That book happens to be called the book of Shmuel. The main character is David. And David's involvement with, interaction with, separation from, affinity for the Philistines is a central piece of the Shmuel book. And David is represented, the positive David is an Abraham character based on the Abraham story primarily. And of course, David's involvement with the Philistines is well documented in the book. And one of the more interesting questions in the book of Shmuel, book which has many interesting questions. So that's, that's actually a very important point about, and very interesting, how two books of the canon use the Abraham narrative for their own purposes. Okay, let us now continue. So now we're up to chapter 13, Lord has departed. And now let's look at chapter 13, verse number 14. First of all, let me stop here for a moment. Does anybody have any comments or questions before we continue? Yes? Yes. Why do, uh, why do you think they bring in Ganeden? <laughs> why they bring in Ganeden? They bring in Ganeden. Why specifically over here is a good question. The point I think is that let me, let me make, I'll make a general statement about Gan Eden without getting to the specifics of it. Um, the, in the introductory session, uh, I talked about, and this will come through consistently, I talked about how one, how one, how one studies the Abraham narrative. And the, the first point I made is that it would be a very bad mistake to begin the Chumash with chapter 12 or the end of chapter 11, because that's not how the Torah starts. The Torah starts with creation stories. The Abraham narrative, the patriarchal narrative, is embedded in the larger creation story. And the significance of that, among other things, is the following. That the story of the creation story has, um, has, us, has humanity being banished from the sacred space, the Garden of Eden. And what happens after that is there is a search for a kind of alternative to the Garden of Eden. The alternative to the Garden of Eden, perhaps there are two alternatives. One is the land of Canaan, and the other is within the land of Canaan, the sacred place within. The point is that after expulsion from the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Eden becomes something different. It becomes a place that actually not just we can't re-enter, because it's physically we can't, because it's blocked, because the flaming sword blocks the blocks re-entry, but it's actually inappropriate to re-enter. Because the Garden of Eden is not for people who can make choices. Once we eat of that fruit, once we have choice, once we have knowledge and choice, then the, then the Garden of Eden is no longer the right place for us. Because the Garden of Eden is a place where there's very few choices, there was only one choice actually. Outside of that, there are no choices. So the point is that the Garden of Eden then becomes a place like Egypt, because the point of the the point of, of Egypt, as opposed to the land of Canaan, for example, in the Book of Devarim, is very simple. In Egypt, there's always water. 
Whereas in the land of Canaan, God is seeking it out. God is looking at it, see how we behave. And there's a divine response to human behavior. So the point is, since the Abraham narrative is all about discovery of the alternative to Eden, the point over here is that the Torah is, is emphasizing Kigan Hashem Kieretz Mitzrayim, that Mitzrayim, among other things, apart from many other negative sides to Mitzrayim, but it's a place where you really, what you do doesn't matter that much because there's gonna be water in any event. And since the whole point of the story is Eretz Canaan as an alternative to Eden, so the Torah slips in over here, then in going to Sodom, which is wicked, it's also like the land, it's like the land of Mitzrayim. It's, it's the inappropriate place. It's not, it's not what this narrative is gonna be about. What the narrative is about is the place where, where, where decisions and choices make a, make a, a, a difference. Yeah. That's the short answer to it. I mean, I could demonstrate this, but we'll, this will come up again. This is actually a very, very important educational point in terms of studying the Torah, because we always are looking for the context and there are multiple contexts. But one of them is the creation story. And I mentioned this in terms of, for example, the sister story of seeing and taking what is told. And suddenly that casts a different light on Avram saying to Sarah, it makes him a, a, a kind of accomplice to the crime, which is how Sarah sees it in any event. Okay, could anybody I, else? Could I ask a question yeah. also? Of course. Uh, just, uh, I was, especially once you mentioned about choice, uh, I was thinking this before you mentioned that, something about Lot possibly being a character who doesn't make a lot of choices. He seems to be, He's, when he's with Avram, he's like Avram. When he's when he's in Saddam, he's like Saddam. When he's with his daughters, he does what his daughters want. He seems to be a very not making choice. I think that's a very important point. And we'll get to that certainly when we come to chapter 19. He's a person who doesn't, he's a person who doesn't make choices, which is a very uh, important point. And because he's a person who doesn't make choices, he's a person who has no uh, no uh, influence. He lives in Sodom for many years. He's sitting in the gate of Sodom in chapter 19, but apparently he has no influence on anybody, not in his family, but not on the people who have Sodom either. At the so end of the day, uh, he's a person with no influence because he's a person who doesn't choose. And that is very much related to what I was saying about making choices, even bad choices. I have to object to that at least slightly because because he certainly makes a choice to, to invite the strangers home and it's certainly not the culture that's around him. That's true. So I would say, I would modify, so if we get to 19, we will modify the point. Yeah. I would say the following, but we're not in 19, but since you, since you raised the objection, which I happen to agree with, you are saying it's, it's, more, it's, it's more nuanced than I, than I presented it, which is true. But I would say that Lot is a person who on one hand is an Abraham character. He's like Abraham in that respect. Because one of the two main qualities of Abraham is the in, in inviting the outsider in. Everybody's welcome. The big tent, you know, he's Avhamon uh, Goyim. And um, so to that extent, he is like Abraham. But even in the story that you cite, and it's a good point, but you see, even in that story itself, unlike these Abraham inviting the guests in in chapter 18, when he invites the guests into his house, he has his wife doing the baking or whatever, and he has the nar taking care of, of the of the of the of the of the meat. In other words, he involves the entire house in his in his in his, in his kindness. In the case of Lot, 
he operates alone. So he wasn't able to have an influence even in the good stuff that he does. He acts alone. And in fact, since you raised the point, which I totally agree with, the very name Lot itself is interesting because what does Lot mean? The names mean something. Avra means exalted father. But what does Lot mean? What is the name Lot? Secret. Excuse me? Secret. It could be Balat is in secret. Yeah, it's probably related to that. It means, I would say, covered up. Where's the sort of Goliath? It's covered up. The prophet Eliyahu, he covered up his face. So to be covered up, it's related to secret. It's to be isolated, actually, to be alone or isolated. That's the that's what Lot means. So that's exactly the point. He, yes, he does some good, 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 good things, which is why he's saved from Sodom. But at the end of the day, he's also part of Sodom. But why he's, is he's it a, influenced by others without influencing others? I have a question. Yes. Uh, 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 uh. I, I heard the question. Okay, why did he okay. go with Abraham and to be originally? Was it because he was looking for uh, an inheritance, ultimately? We don't know why. He had no children. Or did he, and did he hear God speak or know that God spoke to Abraham? Abraham? We don't, we don't know why he goes. It doesn't appear that he knows direct. The Torah doesn't say why he goes. Well, it leaves it up to us to speculate as to why he might have gone. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, we can only be sort of looking back at that. We can speculate given the placement of the verse, given what how he behaves afterwards. Certainly, the Torah sets him up potentially as a successor. That's for sure. And uh, whether he directly heard. The Torah doesn't say that God spoke to Lot, but the Torah doesn't say God spoke to Terach either. So it sounds like he's, it sounds when you first read it, he's, he's presented as a possible successor, which means presumably that he has some qualities which, 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 which would tend towards the possibility that he could succeed. That's the best I can do with that. But the Torah doesn't tell us. And we don't know. We do know that he chooses to leave because he's influenced by the Mashkeh. And we'll, we'll get back to the Mashke later on. That will be appearing in the story of Lot. Okay, let's let's now continue yeah, with. Rabbi Silver, can I add one? Yes, one last point. Go ahead, sir. You know, I I never ask questions about the characters, only about the narrator and the community who who tells these stories. So I noticed that the verb bachar doesn't appear any time before Sefer Dvarim. So all these stories about the family never ever. Then does the Torah uses the word livchor? So Except here, with Lot it chooses. Yes, only here. So being a single time this is chosen, I think is is uh, meaningful. Yes, could be. I don't know. I have to think about it again. I have to think more about that. The word livchor is a significant word, clearly. Um, okay, let's get to. We have one. One quick comment. Why was Lot at all considered good inviting these people in when he gave his two, he's offering his daughters to the to the people. Go take my daughters. That's pretty nasty. That happens afterwards. No, first he invites them into his house and the people surround his house and demand that the two men be sent out to them. Then he offers his daughters. Did what he sense they were malachim? Did he know they were malachim? No, he doesn't know that. Offering the daughters are 
is obviously a negative on, on, on many levels, by the way. But uh, but yeah, but that's the that's the part of growth that belongs inside Sadal. Well, we'll get to chapter 19, we will see that to the point that the Torah presents Lot as both an Abraham type in a sense, but also he is a Sodom type. And the offering of the daughters is, a, is the Sodom side of, of, of Lot, which is why he has difficulty leaving. He, he, he tarries, he delays, he can't leave Sodom. It's difficult for him to leave because a part of him belongs there. Part of him doesn't belong there. That's the picture the Torah presents us with, which is an interesting picture. Okay, let's continue it's, now. With it's, why, it's also why he gets his comeuppance at the end of the story in, uh, in being the progenitor of children through his own daughters. Yes, we will, true. We will we'll get to chapter 19. We have to be patient. There's a lot of chapter 19, a lot there, but we'll see. Now we're Perhaps up to chapter we number have, 14. Yeah. We, chapter we, 13, we had a couple questions. Come, we had a couple questions come in on the chat as oh, well. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, one of them was, does it seem that Sarah went willingly as Abraham's partner in the mission um, when they when they go to Egypt? Uh, we also had a question about whether uh, we think that Lot knows that Hashem is speaking to Avram or if he's following more from a sense of, of familial obligation. We don't know. I mean, the truth is, the second point we simply don't know, that was Wendy's question. We don't know. I don't think what? we have any, 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 any evidence. My question was actually, did Sarah go willingly in the first place? I'm answering that now, right. Oh. So, Not to Egypt, but to Canaan with Abraham. How can you tell? I you can't really know. I mean, it's very hard to know to what extent the women have a choice to begin with. <laughs> if we assume with what the Medrash assumes, and I don't discount it in terms of the shot, that Yiska is Sarah, it means that he takes Yiska, if Yiska is Sarah, then it means that that, Yisk, that Lot and Sarah are brother and sister, which I believe is the pshat. In which case, what Avram says later is actually true, which is his brother died, his brother has a daughter, his niece, and Avram takes the niece, who, whom he takes as a as a as a as a wife as well. But fundamentally, he's taking care of his brother's children, which is Lot on one hand, and Sarah on the other which is certainly a, a valid reading of the Chumash. So did she go? She's an orphan, basically. And he, uh, he, he uh, takes her. It's the way the Medrash reads the story of uh, Esther and, uh, and uh, Mordechai. But he go kabat, and the Medrash says, the Agada, the Talmud says, at least one strain in it, that he marries her. He marries her because he's going to protect her, take care of her. She's an orphan, just like Sarah's an orphan. <laughs> so it's hard to know the Chumash doesn't tell us, doesn't tell us, it, it leaves gaps in the text. And you could try to fill the gap or not, uh, if sometimes there's evidence to, to move us one way or the other. But in point of fact, we don't know. We know she goes along with his plan, that we do know, and we know that she resents it later, that we do know. Okay, let's, let's continue now with verse number uh, 14. Let's see. So it says, Hashem Amara, yeah, yes, let's see. So God now speaks to Avram after Lot has departed. Okay, 
So God said to Avram, you have to go leave, separates from Avram, lift up your eyes and see from the place where you are, north and south, east and west, all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your descendants forever. So here we have an interesting verse. And Avram is told to look and see. Every place that you see, I will give to you. That's interesting, first of all, because in chapter 12, we remember that God, go to the place I share our echo that I will show you. And then in verse number seven, God, Avram came to Shechem, Elon Moreh. God appeared to Avram. And God built an altar to the God who appeared to him. So the focus in chapter 12 is that God is doing the showing. Avram is seeing what God shows, God appearing. This verse is a little different. In this verse, the land that you will possess is the land that you see. You will see it. So it seems like Avram plays a more central role over here. What Avram will see is what Avram will possess. And What's interesting in that respect, I'll just put a thought out for later. <clears throat> if we understand the seeing to mean not just physical seeing, it probably does mean to physically see, but often to see something means more than that, to perceive, to connect in some very profound way. It reminds me very much of the end of the Chumash when Moshe is taken to the top of the mountain and he's allowed to see the land. You can't enter it, but you can see it. And it's more than just seeing a picture. He's seeing the land. In a certain sense, he's there. He can't really be there. He can't cross over. But it's very powerful that the focus in the Chumash at the end is what God allows him to see. He sees this. He sees that. Right. I have shown you. I have allowed you to see it, says God. You can't go this over here. There's more of a sense about Avram being central in terms of the seeing. It's not what God shows him. It's what you will see. And we should bear this in mind when we get to chapter 22, which is Akedat Yitzchak, because there is a tremendous focus in that chapter on what Avram can see and his ability to see. He sees from afar. He sees afterwards. The word to see is a critical word in the Akedah. And in a certain sense, it plays off the verse over here. <coughs> whatever, whatever you see will be yours. It's interesting. And God instructs him to, to look, raise your eyes. From the place that you are. And in all directions, here there are four directions. North and south, east and west. Whatever you see will be yours. And what's interesting is that this verse, uh, to see from the place where you are and the land that you see will be yours, it reminds us of another verse, actually, later in the book of Breshit. Very, very similar verse in the book of Breshit. Let's see if we can scroll down and get this. Let's see if we can jump down here somehow. How about... Here, Jacob leaves the land, chapter 28, um, and he has a dream. In the dream, 
he sees a staircase or a stairway going up to heaven, angels walking up and down, and God speaks. And verse number 13 of chapter 28, the God of Abraham and Isaac, the land upon which you sleep, because Jacob goes to sleep there, I will give to you and your descendants. Your descendants will be as the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and the east, to the north and the south. And through you, with the families of the earth, through you and your descendants, will the families of the earth be blessed. That's a verse that we encounter in the very beginning of Rechucha. So we have here two verses that remind us primarily of chapter 13 of our verse, and also have Abraham language even in verse number 14. So the question then becomes, of course, what is the... Um, what is the, uh, let me see if I can find a chapter, chapter. So what is the significance of this? What, what, is, what does this tell us over here? So first of all, I would ask the question in our verse, um, what does it mean to pick up your eyes and see, so back to verse 14 of chapter 13, from the place where you are. What is the significance of raise your eyes and look out from where you are? So I think it has perhaps two meanings, maybe the more than two. One of them from the place where you are is underscoring the fact that the place where Avram is, is in fact the land of Canaan. Avram Yashav Yeretz Canaan. Lot has left the land, the land as defined in this chapter. And Avram remains in the land. He doesn't leave. He doesn't go to the fertile place. He stays in the land. God says, from the place where you are, so you stay here. And maybe you once detoured outside, but you stay here. And from this place, in contrast to Lot, the blessing will come from where you are. The blessing's not coming from the other place. It's coming from where you are. That, I think, is one significance. But I had another thought about from the place where you are. And that is, when you read this verse in the light of chapter 28, when Yaakov goes to sleep and he has his dream about the angels ascending and descending, and God speaks to Yaakov. And God says to Yaakov, the place that you are sleeping is going deep to be for you and your descendants. And there's a very interesting medrash on that, on that verse. The, meaning the place where you are sleeping will be for yours and your descendants. You will, it says later, you'll spread out north, south, east, and west. So, parallel to what we have over here. So what does it mean, the place that you are, I will give to your descendants? Keep hill. Yes, that's the medrash. The medrash is that God took all the land of Israel and folded it up and put it under Jacob's head. 
So you read such a madrash, you ask yourself the only important question, which is, what are they trying to say? What, what, what are they trying to teach us? Obviously, no one takes that literally. But the point is, I think it's saying something very important about because we know that, I mentioned before about the alternative to Eden, about the sacred land, the sacred space. And that is that you can see it that there are two sacred spaces. There's the land of Canaan is a sacred space. And within the land of Canaan, there's the second the Beit HaMikdash, the Mishkan, etc. But the truth is, perhaps, that fundamentally, there's one sacred place, actually. The, the sacred place is God's place, temple, the Mishkan. In the case of Yaakov, chapter 28, Yaakov wakes up from his dream and says, I've been sleeping in the holy place, the gateway to heaven. And Yaakov names the place Beit El, chapter 28. It was called Luz. He called that place Beit El, and he made a, a vow. If you bring me back, he says, and this place shall become the house of God, Beit Elohim. That was Jacob's vow. And the point is that primarily that's the goal. The goal is to find ourselves in the holy place. The land of Canaan is holy because it's the land in which is contained the holy place, Beit El. Now, where is the place in this verse, in our verse over here, in verse number 14, where is Hamakom Asherat Hashem? Where does God speak to Abraham, actually? Where, where do we find Abraham in chapter 13? So the Torah says where we find him. When he came back from Egypt, he went back to the same place from which he left to Egypt. And he called out again in God's name, by Hashem. Hashem. But where is that place? Says the Torah, Bein Beit El That Abraham, his first stop was Shechem, and his stop at the end of this chapter is Hebron. But in between that, we, we twice find Abraham next to Beit El, if not in Beit El. Bein Beit El So Beit El, of course, in the Jacob narrative, Beit El becomes absolutely central. That's where Jacob returns to. He returns to Beit. That's where he takes his vow. That's where he has the vision. That's where Jacob returns to. Jacob also goes to Shechem and then Beit El and then Hebron, exactly as Abraham does. Exactly the same journey. No difference. But over here, if we take it to mean the place in which Abraham cries out to God, called out to God in Beit El, in God's house. Because what is God's house? It's not the place where God speaks to, the, to, to humanity and humanity calls out to God. It's Beit El. So from the place where you are, from the place where you are, from this place, you see from this place. I was thinking about this actually for a different reason. I become, I guess, in my old age, sort of reflective about my own teaching and what I aspire to be as a teacher and what is, I think, special about, I think it's special about the approach. And I think it has to do with, I talked to last week at the end in the political context about seeing what is essential, what is peripheral. But related to that is something else when we're studying together. And that is the way I, like to interpret the biblical text is to find something which is at the center. And from that center, you move out to a hundred different interesting places. 
From that place, actually, it's what God said to Jacob. You are, you are sleeping in the Holy Land. When Holy Land? He's sleeping in one place, in Beitel. No. To your descendants, I will give this land. Where you are, where you are now, because everything else is actually connected to, should be connected to, what is the sacred place. And the trick is to discover what is the sacred place. The trick in learning the text is what is the sacred text. By sacred, I mean, what is the essential text? What is it about, actually? And what verses are central to the text? And then you move in a hundred directions. You find all kinds of connections to multiple texts with all kinds of nuances. And there's all kinds of music being played. It's, but the trick is to find the center. And over here, the center is, this is what God, from the place where you are, which is Beitel, what God said to Jacob later. The place where you are, this land I will give to your descendants. Something interesting, by the way, I noticed that in each of the two stories, in chapter 28 and in chapter 13, in each case, God speaks about four different directions. So look from the, from the place where you are, that's in our chapter, in chapter 13. But in chapter 28, when God said to Jacob, uh, I'm going to be with you, etc. And God said, I'm going to give you the land, the place where you are lying down. That place will be given to your descendants. And then God added, It's interesting that over there, you have four directions, but in a different order. Because in our text, it's Safonu Vanegma Kedma Vayama. And over there, it's Yama Vakedma Safonu Vanegma. So four directions. But I wonder why the difference, or is there a significance to the directions being given in different order? I put the question out there to think about. I had a preliminary thought about it. And that is that in the case over here, since just above, Avram had said to Lot, if you go north, I'll go south. Safon, I'll go Dorom, which is right, right and left. The right, of course, is being the south, of course. And the left is Safon. So here it starts with Safon of Anegba, which is inside the land. But even Kane Movayama, even within the land, there's a part of inside this land, there is a, a, a Kadema and a Yama, of course, which is still inside the land, in, in contradistinction to, to Lot, by Yisrael Mikedem, which means he left the land. He, he rejected the Tzafon of Enigma. He chose only the Kedma. But God says to Avram here, in, the, in this context of Lot leaving, departing, abandoning, there is Tzafon of Enigma, parallel with what Avram said earlier, that even came of a Yama, even came of a Yama. In the case of Yaakov is interesting. God says to Yaakov, I'm going to be with you. Uforasta, Yama There, the Yama precedes the Safon of perhaps because the story of Yaakov in chapter 28, that's preliminary to Yaakov leaving the land. He's up going to Haran, which is north. But the point is, before he goes, he's given a promise. He actually is able to, he's, he's, he's sleeping unbeknownst to himself in the holy, holiest place, in Hamakom. 
And um, when Jacob leaves after this vision and after the commitment and after the vow and after Beitel, the very next verse of chapter 29, So the Torah goes out of its way to define Haran as which means outside. And there, it's interesting because Jacob faces the challenge of returning from Kedah, which he ends up doing with great difficulty at the end of the story. So I'm just wondering, thinking out loud, to what extent the ordering of these four directions is related in a way to the larger narrative, to the larger context of the story. But anyway, what's interesting for our purposes today is the parallel. That those are two parallel stories. Then in chapter 13, we read in light of 28, it means from Beidel, it means from the holy place. From this place, everything else flows. The possession of the land follows from the possession of the temple. It's interesting in this respect, as to digress for 10 seconds, that in the Talmud and the medieval commentaries who speak about the sanctity of the land of Israel, the Rambam distinguished between the conquest of Joshua on one hand and the story of Ezra's return on the other. That the story of uh, Joshua's conquest is a story about conquest, military conquest. But as the Rambam pointed out, and is obvious, the return, Ezra's return to the land, had nothing to do with conquest. The Jews weren't conquering the land. The Jews were given permission to return. But fundamentally, they were given permission to build the temple. And that the possession of the land in the second time is largely a function of the ability to build the temple. The temple becomes front and center. Whereas in the case of Yoshua, that's not so. When you read the book of Yoshua, it doesn't sound that that's fundamental. It sounds it's an important piece of it. But in the case of Ezra, it all flows from the temple. And flowing from the temple can be read into the Jacob story and into the Abram story here in chapter 13. Okay, let me, uh, let me just continue a little bit. So this is what God said to Avram after Lot departs. And, um, and now we have at the end of chapter 13, um, God again says to Avram a blessing. The descendants will be like the, the uh, dust of the earth. Get to this later on. Verse 17. Avram is commanded to walk through the land. It's within its breath for I will give it to you. And Avram does so, and he goes to Hebron, stop number three on his journey, and he once again builds an altar to God. What is, this, what is the idea of walk through the land, I will give it to you as a possession. So here there's something interesting, and I'll conclude and I'll take comments or questions with something that we have in the Ramban. The Ramban basically asks this question, and the Ramban's understanding, the Ramban is also a great mystic, but the Ramban's understanding of what Avram is doing is the following. This is my own language, but I think it's it found in the Ramban. And that is, the, Avram is given a, a promise, I would say a prophecy. Someday your descendants will possess the land. The Torah has already said twice, that the Canaanites at present, at that time, in the story of Abraham, the Canaanites dwell in the land. 
So Abraham's mission is not to possess the land himself. Canaanites live in the land. But Avram's mission is to symbolically possess the land. And I would say what emerges from the Ramban is, the Ramban might put it this way, to act out the prophecy. He was given, he's told that the land will be his descendants. He's told in a sense the land will be his. To you and your descendants. But it doesn't mean that it's yours in the sense of actually possessing it. Because Abraham doesn't actually possess the land. He himself said, they said to him, he says himself, in this past week's parasha, I'm a stranger and sojourner with you. I'm a I don't really possess the land. Give me permission to bury my wife. Give me permission to buy a grave. But what he's doing is acting out the prophecy. And in acting out the prophecy, in a certain mystical sense, he's ensuring that the prophecy will actually take place. That's what the Ramban claims. The Ramban has a kind of mystical interpretation where he makes the argument, it's a mystical one, but it's an interesting one. And that is in acting out the prophecy, you ensure that it's going to take place. We could probably understand this perhaps more from a psychological standpoint, but for the Ramban, it's not psychological. For the Ramban, it's ontological, it's a part of reality. That's what Abraham's mission in life is, to live the prophecy, not just to hear the prophecy, but to live it. And how we have in this verse, verse number 17, the word that appears prominently in the Abraham narrative, which is to go, to walk. Kum could even be kind of intensive. Sometimes in biblical Hebrew, the, the reflexive is an intensive. It's within its breath. And in doing so, you are enacting out the prophecy. You are ensuring that the prophecy actually will, will take effect. So I'll, we'll st- I'll stop at this point. Next week, we will continue with beginning with chapter 14. It is obvious, I would say, that we're not going to complete the Abraham narrative in the remaining weeks. So my intention is to continue in the spring as well. We'll see how it goes. But next week, we'll start with chapter 14. Does anybody have any comments or questions now? I do. I yes. do also. Yes. So I I had a um, forgive me, but it's kind of new agey thought. But uh, I was connecting the sa'enecha uh, and sham to the hineni that he says three times in chapter in the Akedah story, and. It, it, it resonated for me with the um, kind of the current, maybe it's a Buddhist or a New Age concept of being present, that Abraham, on the one hand, he saw Enecha, that he looks beyond himself to um, perceive, understand, and connect to the sacred, to the divine, to God, but he in but Ramakom, and he's present in the place where he is, if you think of it as a metaphoric place, that he internalizes it. So he really makes a deep internalized connection. Right. So first of all, let me say the following. First of all, I think it's a very Jewish interpretation. Don't we, okay. need, we don't need the Buddhists for this. But, this. but the point is, I would say more, that Vayisa Raham Etenav appears twice as the Akedah. The very chapter you mentioned with the triple Hineni, which mm-hmm. is true, 
but you have a double Vaisar Rahametinav. Vaisar Rahametinav, Vayata Makomi Rachok in chapter 22, verse 4. And then Vaisar Rahametinav, Vayavihinayayo, I believe it's verse 13 of chapter 22. So you have that striking parallel. And the Hineni does mean that. That's exactly what Hineni means to be fully present. And yes, I think it's it's the case that you can be one could say that in, in seeing the place, even from a distance, he's actually present there. Even before he gets there, he's there in a sense. And the whole Akedah seems to be that, to be and saying isn't that. Isn't Hamakom another term for God also? That's in rabbinic Hebrew. I don't think in the Chumash you have Hamakom as being God. That's a rabbinic uh, name for God. I don't believe it's in the Chumash. Mm -hmm. Obviously, it's coming out of it's coming out of something in the Torah. They don't usually don't simply make things up. So it's, it's something. There's something about it. But the word Makom is central in the Akedah. It's central in chapter 28, by the way. It appears in those two chapters together ten times. Those two chapters speak to each other. We'll get there later. But the point is well taken. But Vayisavahametena. You have it over here. Lord also lifts up his eyes. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, he lifts them up towards the Mashkia, what, what, what he sees. And but he's not in any, maybe he doesn't Mashkia. connect to. I didn't hear you. I said that we don't have Hineni with Lot, that he looks beyond, but he doesn't no, of course make not. an internal a, connection to it. Right, but Hineni is typically a response to, a, to some kind of command, mm -hmm. either divine command, human command, often a difficult one. Jacob said to Joseph, go and see your brothers, see how they're doing, Hineni. So it's not always a divine command, but Hineni, in the way it functions in Breshit is, it appears at very critical moments and in moments where there's a choice to be made and a choice that is fraught with great danger, with great implications. So we have the arcade. We'll get to the arcade hopefully later on. We have many, uh, there's a long journey till we get to the arcade. And some of these, um, there's a lot of, we'll see. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of thinking to be done about these chapters. What I said today, I mostly I've never said before in my life. I was just thinking, but it's always something new, you know. Um, is there anybody else? We'll have to stop can, in a can minute. Can I say something? Uh, can, I, yes. Uh, you know, it strikes me that there was a meriva the first time we have a meriva. And we might expect Avram to try and settle it, like negotiate, yes. like do something positive. Yes, we and would. And it's interesting that the first thing he says is, uh, let's say, uh, Yes, that's very true. But, yeah, but then I think we have the solution to this question because it's, it says, Avraham, the, meaning that uh, in life, I think, a lesson for me that uh, you have to depart from things before you can hear God's, uh, I mean, before we, you can do, you can be on the right way. Right. So, so it's, not only, uh, it's not about making peace. It's about knowing when to leave things which should be left. Right. So that's what you're saying is actually Rashi. Rashi, oh, says, Rashi says exactly what you're saying. Rashi says that God only speaks to Avram after Lot leaves. Because Rashi, as I said in the beginning, is not a fan of Lot. Um, there is another way to read it, by the way, which is more of a consolation. Lot is left. There's nobody here. God says, don't worry. There will be, there'll be somebody else. So that's a different way to read it. 
but your suggestion essentially is what Rashi is saying. You have to know when to, when, when to leave. It's what Warren Buffett said about the stock market, how you make money. <laughs> Not know when to buy, know when to sell. Know when to get out of a position. And that's a very important point. Sometimes you've got to get out of a position because it's not good for you and it's made difficult, but it's, it's, it's preventing you from moving forward. And that is certainly true in the Avram, so we'll get to that later on in terms of Yishmael. 100% true, he can't move forward as long as Yishmael is there. So as difficult as it may be, he has to send Yishmael away. We'll get to that later on in the story. I'll take one more last comment, anybody? His Halech. His Halech certainly reminds me of Miss Halech in the Garden of Eden story. Hmm. And, it, and it, 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 it makes me wonder about, about that Abraham has entered the new garden. And so he's, God can now take a step in educating him in proper garden life. I thought you were going to say something else, actually, that in the garden story, it's God that's walking. Yes, Here, it's exactly. That's, that is what I'm saying. Oh, that is what I'm that's saying. Good. That's a good point, yeah. Okay, so we'll stop here then. Next week, we will hopefully continue. Looking forward, and uh, good. Thank you for participating. Thank you, Abbe Sivas. Thank you.